You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with Lips and Ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L I B S Y N ads.com. This week on Adventures in Finance, we're going to be talking about what is probably the biggest story of our time. The story centers on an impending crisis that people just aren't talking about and nothing is being done. The baby boomers, with all of the capital in the world, have to retire. And the problem is the pensions that they have accumulated generally are underfunded. And that's meant that these guys probably don't have enough money to retire. Now, this isn't just a story about finance. This is a story about people and their families, people who've worked their entire lives counting on a system that was designed to fail. And right now, pensions around the world are facing a staggering $75 trillion in unfunded liabilities. And that's just basically fancy accounting jargon for a mountain of broken promises. Broken promises when combined with underfunded pensions, in the US alone, 75 million baby boomers will be retiring in the coming decade and a half and will be relying on their pensions and investments to live out their golden years as they had envisioned. On the one hand, you've got somebody who is legitimately saying, my wife chose to work in education and she was made this promise of a pension throughout her career and she has legitimately and legally earned every single penny that's been promised to her. On the other side of the boxing ring is an individual who is saying, But why are my property taxes going up to pay for your wife's pension? I only have a fixed number of dollars to retire on, and you're telling me that I have fewer dollars to retire on because my property taxes are going to go up to pay for your wife's pension that has been inappropriately accounted for. And over time, one by one, the pillars that hold up the baby boomer's retirement dream are now crumbling. And this doesn't even account for a business cycle that's way overdue to roll over. And if it does, all those stocks in 401k accounts could lose up to half of their value. But again, we can talk forever in aggregates or in terms of statistics. But what this ultimately boils down to at a human level is that millions of people will be getting a letter in the mail telling them that everything they had planned for, that home in Boca Raton, Florida, or even the college fund for their grandchildren, is now gone. This week on Adventures in Finance, The Pension Crisis. And also in this week's long short segment, Aaron and I discuss the good and, as always, the not-so-good stories of the week. This week, I'm long Turkish gold. The Turkish government is actually taking steps to give its central bank the right of first refusal on domestically produced gold. I'm going to be short. Zimbabwean banks, commercial banks in Zimbabwe, will be compelled to accept livestock, such as cattle, goats, and sheep, as collateral for cash loans to informal businesses. Finally, in a favorite segment of ours called Things I Got Wrong, we speak with a market expert about something they got wrong and get them to share a pearl of investing wisdom with the benefit of 2020 hindsight. Yeah, and this week uh, we're joined by Preston Pish, the founder of Pylon Holding Company and the co-host of the Investors Podcast. Preston's a big, big fan of Warren Buffett, and he talks about a mistake he made in applying that Warren Buffett-style value investing during the great financial crisis. I'm Grant Williams. I'm Aaron Chan, and this is Adventures in Finance. Today is April 13, 2017, and welcome to episode 11 of Adventures in Finance. And always to my right is our producer, James. James, how are you? Good morning, Aaron. How are you? Yeah, not too bad. You're looking very fresh this morning. Am I? I've been up for a couple hours already, so I don't know what it is. Maybe it's the the Cayman sun or I don't know, changing the seasons, who knows, but... Um, well, I, I can tell you that the sunrises in Cayman are just as beautiful as the sunsets. That is true. And I'm not going to lie, I've been up since four in the morning, but it's all good. And with us is, is my co-host, Grant. Grant, where in the world are you? Gentlemen, I'm getting ever closer. I am in uh, wonderful New York City this week, and it's a it's one of those beautiful spring days, 70 degrees, blue skies, uh, 
So I'm a very happy bunny this morning. Oh, so you're living life in a New York romance movie then? No, I wish. I'm living life on the Real Vision hamster wheel. It's a big difference. No, no, no. But, but New York, there is something cinematic about New York. I, mean, I, I lived there for four years and you can look at any scene, even if it's like a garbage cannon, <laughs> like, you know, a park bench and someone sitting there. It just looks like it could be out of a cinema or some kind of film. So Yeah, no, you're, you're right. It's, it's, uh, it's in, in spectacular form this morning, Aaron. Yeah. But uh, maybe for the listeners, uh, Grant, can you tell them where you were for, the, for this past week? Oh, come on now. Listen, let's not, any, any golfers out there are going to just hate me for saying <laughs> I was at the Masters at the weekend. But uh, yeah, I was lucky enough to, uh, to go to the Masters this last weekend, which was just fantastic. An, an incredible weekend. Apparently Snoop Dogg was there. Did you see him? Uh, well, we did not uh, meet. Um, uh, I did look for him and uh, I couldn't see him. I checked the range. I checked the putting green. Couldn't see him anywhere. So no cloud of smoke anywhere? <laughs> no, no. I did not see uh, a cloud of smoke being followed by a Snoop Dogg, which is a shame. All right. Well, look. Let's uh, let's stop talking about um, about golf and let's get into our first feature of the week, which is our long short. Aaron, uh, what's your long for this week? All right, Greg. Before I start, I'm really surprised you haven't come up with this long in 11 episodes. So, can you guess what it is? Well, the only thing that makes any sense to me here, based on that, would be gold. You are 100 percent correct. And <laughs> <laughs> yeah, this week I'm long Turkish gold and. In a almost expected move now, the Turkish government is actually taking steps to give its central bank the right of first refusal on domestically produced gold. Now, Turkey produces around 27 tons of, of gold per year, um, but this would allow the central bank to essentially boost its reserves of, the, of gold without depleting its foreign exchange reserves and, and dollars. Uh, and so, in exchange for gold, the gold producers of Turkey are going to get Turkish lira. That sounds like kind of a bad trade to me. Well, that's uh, yeah, that's not great, is it? That is not that's not great. I wonder if that is a signpost. I wonder if that's what happens to in a lot of these countries, Aaron. If the central banks actually force people to sell them their gold, that would be quite interesting. And it wouldn't be the first time we've seen it. No, that is very very true. Well, uh, while you're long gold this week, Aaron, I am long green. I'm long green, and I'm long thrift stores because uh, oh, there's a great I story you were here. Something from, else there. Um, no, uh, that was a different podcast. We. There's a great story here from Canada, of all places, where somebody in a thrift shop paid $5 for a, an authentic green jacket from the Augusta National Golf Club. Um, yeah, now it sold at auction this week for uh, $139,000. And uh, yeah, and interestingly enough, the, the tournament, the golf club, have confirmed that it is uh, an authentic jacket. Um, but the original owner's name has been cut out. So uh, so we'll never know whose jacket it was, although as far as I was aware, all the jackets have to be kept at the club. So somebody snuck one out and has it's ended up in a thrift shop where someone's paid $5 for it and sold it for 139 grand. So uh, long Augusta green jackets for me this week. <laughs> wow. Grant, that is ridiculous risk reward. Hold on. Yeah. 27,000X. That's a pretty good... Uh... For a John through a thrift store. Hey, let's uh, let's do a short story. I'm going to go first with this one, um, Aaron, and I'm going to do it just in case you've stolen the same story as me because I like the story. I am going to do something that shouldn't be a surprise to anybody, but perhaps the reason is I am going to be short Zimbabwean banks. Uh, and the reason I am short Zimbabwean banks is that there is a new uh, bill tabled for debate by the Finance and Economic Development Minister uh, in Zimbabwe called the Movable Property Security Interest Bill. And what this will do, uh, if passed, it means that commercial banks in Zimbabwe will be compelled to accept livestock, such as cattle, goats, and sheep, as collateral for cash loans to informal businesses. I mean, this is just the, the genius of government. I mean, it doesn't matter which country you stick them in, uh, they just find uh, their own way of, uh, of, of screwing things up. So, yes... Commercial banks forced to accept cows in exchange for cash. What could possibly go wrong, I wonder? You know, this whole fiat experiment, it's amazing. It's basically come full circle. We're back at barter. Yeah, exactly right. Yep. Well, Grant, my short for the week, I am shorting Google. And it's actually related to what you were talking about last week with 1984. Now, starting in October of next year in the US and I think in UK as well, Google News will be rolling out and displaying these fact-checking labels, you know, on the side of search results. Uh, you know, for, for news and information. Um, and, and basically, this, this will, the, these will be vetted and will show whether it's considered to be true 
or false. Um, and, and, and this just completely floored me because it reminded me so much of what we're talking about with 1984. This is basically the ministry of truth. So, so hey, let, let me get this straight. So who, who designates that it's a true story? Google themselves. Yeah, so it's not an internal team to Google, but they're relying on, and I quote, trusted publishers and fact checkers. So, th- I mean, this is where things are headed. I mean, you look at look in Germany where Angela Merkel has proposed some legislation to charge or to fine social media companies 50 million euros for, for not suppressing illegal content. So the Ministry of Truth is back, and they might be hiring soon. God, you know, it's just, it is, it's terrifying. This whole, this fake news epidemic and the response to it, um, it really is quite worrying, you know. Yeah, it's terrifying, Grant, you know, because... Even like my own personal experience, and maybe you can relate to this as well, Google has become like a subconscious part of society. Like if I want to check if my browser or Wi-Fi is working, I'll type in Google. Uh, so, you know, it's, it's crazy how entrenched it's become in society. And, and where's the aspect of just respecting people's ability to make their own decisions? I mean, like a spokesperson from Google said that these fact-checking icons would you know, make it easier for people to review and to assess these, you know, these fact checks and making their own informed opinion. Why don't you just let them make up their own opinions? Well, I mean, look, you know, the, the, the problem is people, if people want to know something, they type in into Google, they ask a question to Google and they don't go any further down than the first, you know, two or three answers. And as we all know from Google AdWords, you can pay to get yourself in the first two or three answers. So it's a pretty, uh, it's a pretty sorry state of affairs. All right, Aaron, well, look, let's, uh, let's move on from, uh, from the longs and shorts, we've got a lot of other stuff to get to, including... This week's feature. But before we get into it, Grant, just looking back at some of our past stories that we've ran, you look at India, you look at China's One Belt, One Road, it appears that we kind of have a, a long-run bias. And these are the kinds of stories that play out over the long run, but this week's story might have the longest time horizon of them all. Yeah, I, look, I, I mean, in many ways it is, Aaron, but the, you know, the problem with this one is when you look at... Um, the One Belt, One Road, for example, that's a long time horizon story that's going to unfold over time. This one's a story that's been evolving over time, but no one's really been paying attention. And we happen to be getting close to that bang moment. So um, it's going to play out over time, but it's going to become very, very important very, very quickly. And it's going to affect everybody. It does. I mean, you think about pensions, uh, you know, you think you will get out of it what you pay into it, but there's an ever widening chasm between the contributions and future promises I mean, it's essentially a scheme that Charles Ponzi would be proud of. Uh, well, but look, it's, 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 it's turned into that, yeah. I mean, which is unfortunate. I think it, it, it started out as a, as a great idea. Um, but we now have this completely unavoidable collision between an unstoppable force and an immovable object. Um, as we see, demographics worldwide are about to collide with $78 trillion of unfunded liabilities. And the, and the amazing thing is, hardly anybody's talking about this stuff. And Grant, so you mentioned the $78 trillion of unfunded liabilities globally. Well, the global pension market of, you know, for assets around $36 trillion, and that is basically the top 20 pension markets in the world. And to give you some perspective, just the assets alone, that's greater than seven times the daily traded volume of the global foreign exchange market, which is the largest market in the world. Uh, but for our purposes, we're just going to focus on the U.S. because the U.S. holds around 62% of the total assets, so it's around $22 trillion dollars. And the UK is, you know, a distant second with 8% of the total assets. So for this feature, we're going to be focusing on the US. Yeah, the, the, the one thing that strikes me, Aaron, uh, you, know, I, you and I choose to focus on different sides of this. You're, you're looking at how enormous that $36 trillion is, you know, to, uh, seven times the daily traded volume of the global FX market. I'm looking at the two times that figure that's unfunded. You know, you've got 14 times the daily volume, uh, which is unfunded. And, and this is the problem. It's the unfunded side of the, of the equation that's going to be the big problem. Well, let's start off then. You know, first step, how did we get into this mess? And, and to start answering that question, we spoke with someone who's been following the story since, you know, the early 2000s. And, and that's Daniel DiMartino Booth, who is the former advisor to Governor Fisher at the Dallas Fed. The pension crisis happened to me if you will. Uh, When I left Wall Street, I had signed a non-compete and agreed to leave the industry for a little while when I moved to Dallas. That's when Danielle started writing a regular financial column for the Dallas Morning News in 2001. In any event, I was probably the oldest unpaid intern to ever land on the newsroom floor, and I was assigned to do a story on, on airlines at the time trying to get rid of their pensions 
by declaring bankruptcy and pushing them off on the Pension Benefit Guarantee Corporation. Well, I'd never heard of the PBGC. I had never explored uh, anything of that nature. This is probably 01, 02 uh, at, at the time. And it was fascinating to me to begin to look back to pension accounting for the first time since I was in oh, I don't know, managerial accounting in business school in 1995. What I had studied in business school had become this gigantic problem because of a bunch of actuaries and accountants gone wild. So Grant, I took managerial accounting in college. Uh, and there was none of the actuaries and accountants gone wild. I mean, uh, when she yeah, said that's, that, that's going to be the lowest selling video of that series that they ever produce, I guarantee you. <laughs> yeah, but I'm just picturing accountants and math types just lobbing and throwing calculators at each other. Right. But, you know, I asked Danielle what she meant by actuaries and accountants gone wild. And, and what it came down to was basically some wacky pension math. And the way that pension accounting works is something you would only ever conceive of well, not on planet Earth. You would only be able to conceive of it on another planet because in in the world that we live in, where the Federal Reserve and other central bankers have driven interest rates down to the lowest levels in 5,000 years, it would seem almost surreal to even suggest in such a world, if you're saving money for pensioners, if you think about your grandparents and the type of investments that they should be in, i.e. really safe bonds or cash, so you want to match those assets with the liabilities, which implies that you're going to be able to anticipate returning something close to what bonds yield. And in this world, that's been something close to nothing. So Grant, pensions in theory are meant to invest in sort of safe assets and, and they should be matching their assets with liabilities. But following the dot-com bubble and the great financial crisis 2008-2009, central banks, as Daniel talked about, they took interest rates to zero and effectively took bond yields to zero as well. Yeah, this is this is this is the problem. Um, you know, and, and we find ourselves so often coming back to central bank actions and the unintended consequences. This is something Raoul and I have been speaking about for a number of years now, uh, and we've said all along that as these unintended consequences come to the surface, things are going to get very sticky. And, and this is perhaps the poster child for that. Um, you've forced pension funds to move away from traditional investments and into all kinds of assets. You know, real estate for example, has been a big part of portfolios which don't have the liquidity. If uh, if they do get a pinch, they can't divest themselves of these assets and they're going to affect performance. But you know, the simple truth is these guys weren't compounding at 7 8% as they had intended and planned to do for some time. And, you know, um, the great Richard Russell, who sadly passed away last year, wrote a fantastic piece on this that I would urge everybody to go and look at. It's called Rich Man, Poor Man. You can look it up on the internet and it's a story built around a set of very simple compounding tables. And, uh, you know, compounding interest is often called the eighth wonder of the world. And uh, I've seen nothing better than Richard's uh, parable to explain to people the beauty and the potential heartbreak of compound math. And so compounding is, is you know, crucially important. And when bonds are yielding zero and when you've been through two significant equity shocks, I mean, pensions can't afford to lower their return assumptions. Uh you know, and, and, and in response to that, pensions have had to compensate, as you said. In order to fill that gap, you're really going to have to have some high returning securities. You're talking about, oh, I don't know, an emerging market junk bond, or that's about the only one I can think of, that you would begin to get anything to offset that, a 10, 15 percent return to make up for what you're not making on the safe side of the portfolio. And again, we're, we're talking about the same pensioner here. You're, this is still your grandparents, and you're talking about putting them in investments that are anything but appropriate. I kind of preempted Danielle there, and, and this is this is crucial to understand because this idea that you can catch up, of course, is one side of the coin. The other side of the coin, which is what will happen and is actually starting to happen, is uh, these pension funds are going to have to reduce their return expectations. We've seen that in some of the big ones. Uh, Calpers springs to mind. They've gradually been walking the number down, but they're still, you know, the low ones I think are still at six and a half, maybe down to six somewhere, but most of them are still at the sort of high sixes, low sevens. It's just unrealistic. Yeah, it's completely unrealistic. And I think recently Calpers, they returned 0.75% on the year, meanwhile still right. maintaining 6.5% assumptions. I mean, it's it's absolutely crazy. But you know, most recently, we saw, I guess we saw an example of a perfect storm 
of poor returns, these illiquid investments that you're talking about and Danielle's talking about, uh, you know, political myopia and, and skittish pensioners. And we saw this with the Dallas police and firefighter pension system. Yeah, this is a great signpost. You know, this, this story is something, again, on Danielle's stomping ground, and I, I was uh, talking about this last year. Um, you know, you've got, a, you've got a severely insolvent pension fund, and what you saw happen were a lot of senior policemen and firefighters just, once the story got out that the, that the fund was severely underfunded, they start retiring in their droves because they want to grab their benefits while they can. Um, and now the situation's got so bad, they're talking of bailing out the pension fund because you know, this is how quickly this thing happens once people start to become fearful uh, and, and try and take, uh, take their money out of these pension funds. And it, this is not an isolated incident. There are entire states. Illinois, for example, uh, is in tremendous dire straits with their pension fund, as is New Jersey. And it's these state-sponsored um, defined benefit pensions which are going to be the root cause of this crisis. It is. And, and just to get back to the Dallas uh, you know, pension system, uh, you know, the, ass- the assets at this point only cover 36% of future liabilities, and those assets will be exhausted in 10 years. This is the pension system for the police and firefighters in Dallas, and their assets are going to be exhausted in 10 years. It's just it's incredible. So when you scale this to nearly every developed country in the world, that's how you end up with 76 trillion in unfunded or underfund, underfunded liabilities. But at, at a more human level, it, it is pitting taxpayer against taxpayer. So every time, let's say, I put up a story on LinkedIn, I end up with a, a, a barroom brawl breaking out in the comments section. And sometimes I have enough time to pay attention, sometimes I don't. Now I pay attention every single time. Because on the one hand, you've got somebody who is legitimately saying, my wife chose to work in education. She has two master's degrees. She could have had a much more lucrative career had she chosen to go a different route, but she didn't. She chose to go into teaching as a profession. And she was made this promise of a pension throughout her career. And she has legitimately and legally earned every single penny that's been promised to her. So that's that's one side of the boxing ring, if you will. On the other side of the boxing ring is an individual who is saying, but why are my property taxes going up to pay for your wife's pension? I've worked my entire life in the private sector. I've squirreled away my money in an IRA or in a 401k. I only have a fixed number of dollars to retire on. And you're telling me that I have fewer dollars to retire on because my property taxes are going to go up to pay for your wife's pension that has been inappropriately accounted for. So guess what? I'm, in, I'm, I'm, I'm a resident of Cook County, Illinois. I'm moving to Texas. And in census data that we saw come out um, just a matter of a few weeks ago, we saw indeed that Cook County, Illinois, which houses Chicago, has seen the largest exodus of any area of the country as people begin to try and get out from under the yoke of those rising uh, property taxes, rising interest uh, um, income taxes. This is not a dynamic that is, is even conceivable that could potentially carry on as a factor of time. And yet it's what we're witnessing in this country. You can talk about it from 40,000 feet above the sky, but when it comes down to individuals, they're very real. It's, it's a huge dilemma, a huge paradox. And it's going to come down to the politicians to begin to chip away at it because the judiciary has shown it's not willing. Oh, God, it's coming down to the politicians. Boom. There you go. This is it, right? Because politicians have made what at one time was a manageable situation much worse for, for political support. You know, pensions are promises. You know, they're promises to pay. And politicians are very, very good at making Ooh, promises. They love we, their we promises. They do, don't they? <laughs> um, unfortunately, th- these promises come with a tab. And obviously, 20 years ago, 25, 30 years ago, that tab was a long way off in the difference. So it's these are really, really easy promises to make. Um, but now the rubber's meeting the road. And uh, we've, we've, we've come to the point where the promises that you make, the payoffs can actually be seen. You know, it's it's not so far away. And so um, they do have a mess to sort out. And uh, we're, we're at the point, as I say, where they're going to have to figure out some solutions to this. And politicians, as we said, are very good at promises. Solutions, not so much. Yeah, but Grant, you know, we've come to the part of the story where not even the noblest, you know, the, the, the most 
Um, the politician with the highest integrity can reverse a demographic tsunami, and that's, that's on the horizon. You know, enter the baby boomers. The pension crisis is a multifaceted thing. Essentially, we had the largest demographic bulge in all economic history in the Western world, the baby boomers. They were born all after 1945 and up until about 1964. And those guys have been basically the economic drivers of the entire US economy and the global economy. Um, It was inflation that came around when they first started buying their first house and their first suit and their first car. That enormous amount of people with not enough um, supply of goods and services drove up inflation. And it was driven by demographics, in my opinion. That's Raul Powell, co-founder of Real Vision. As that demographic bulge moved through time, i.e. as they got older, they did different things. They began to save. They began to save heavily in the, in the 1990s. And much of that was some changes in the law as well that allowed them to put money into 401ks in ever-increasing amounts. That became the launch, really, of index funds that came out of that. And it also created a huge amount of capital that went into markets. That capital is still within the markets now. These baby boomers survived several crashes and then eventually got through to where they are today, which is towards retirement. If we look at the demographics themselves, we can see that from about 2014 onwards, baby boomers started getting to retirement age. The average age of a baby boomer today is 62. The average retirement age is 62. So we're getting to the point where the boomers are all coming to retirement. Interestingly enough, Because baby boomers are finding it hard to retire, the average retirement age for a baby boomer is actually rising a year every year, i.e. they're not leaving the labour force as fast as they should. Now that continues all the way through to 2027 when it starts easing off. So baby boomers have got a wall of retirees to come. The largest group of people ever in the history of the United States and across Europe are retiring now. I'm going to mainly refer to the United States just to make this easier because it's a complex thing once we start looking across the world. So this is where things get a bit interesting because people are sitting there no doubt thinking, well, if the baby boomers have all these assets, why should they actually be concerned about retirement? Which is a very simple question. One which fortunately for us, Raoul answers rather nicely. Now, the issue is that the baby boomers, with all of the capital in the world, have to retire. And the problem is, is the pensions that they have accumulated, either via private savings or via the corporations they worked for or via the state, generally are underfunded because returns have been so low over the last decade and a half or so because of the two bear markets and low interest rates. And that's meant that these guys probably don't have enough money to retire. So that's the crisis. You know, Grant, um, Raul was talking about the 401k earlier. And I think the statistics around 93% of 401k assets are held by baby boomers. But I think it's important to kind of touch on this because a 401k is basically a defined contribution plan. So contributions from employee deferrals or employer contributions. And it's, it's typically the setup that most people are familiar with. Now, the funds are typically invested in the stock market, and this is where it ties in with the passive ETF strategies. Um, But I think the really crucial point here is that 401ks have allowed companies to shift the risk onto the employees, and that's why they become more popular over the years. That's exactly right. This this idea of a defined benefit, um, which is the root cause of this problem. These are the promises um, uh, worked out on a preset formula um, and if you look at the the charts, you'll see just how severely the number of defined benefit schemes have plummeted in the last 40 years. Um, and what that's led to on the other side is baby boomers taking on a lot of risk, which they don't really see at risk uh, as risk, because as you're going through the process, you're just putting money into your 401k. And sure, you get a couple of down years in the stock market, and you kind of look at the numbers and say, ouch. But what you don't realize is the problem at the end of the day is now yours and not the company's, except, of course, at the federal and state level, where these uh, a lot of these uh, plans are still defined benefit. And, and again, that is a big part of this problem. And another big part of this problem is just that the demographic math is, is totally predictable. The other thing that's complicating the situation is nobody knows how much money they need to retire. The average baby boomer, their life expectancy is expanding by about two and a half months every year. So the longer they live, the longer they live, essentially. 
And that makes it very, very hard to know how to project how much money you need to retire. Is your life expectancy 81 years old, 79 years old, 83 years old, 85 years old? Well, in this times, with very low interest rates, it makes a real difference to how much capital you need. You know, for example, if you need $40,000 a year to live on, if you push out your life expectancy by five years, you need another 200000 assuming no rates of return on any of your assets. The other trend that we're seeing is the labour force participation rates of the over 65s. They should be retiring, but they can't because they don't have enough money. And I'll come on to the money in a sec. But essentially, since about 1999, from the first part where the first baby boomers started to retire at the age of 55, they saw the writing on the wall and realised that the low returns on their pensions meant that they couldn't retire. So they've actually risen as part of the labour force from about 11% back in 1995 to about 20% now. So they're a huge part of the labour force. It shouldn't be there. They should have retired, but they don't have enough money to do so. This is, uh, this is something that, um, you know, I saw a chart. I mean, we're getting on for almost five years ago now that showed that the fastest rising employment uh, um, demographic was the over 65s. Uh, sorry, big one, over 54s. Um, and you look at this, and there were a number of articles written about the time, and it subsequently kind of just disappeared from the radar screen. But this was, it's not just this being unable to afford to retire, it's people having suddenly to, you know, pay for their kids uh, who can't get jobs. And uh, I, there was an interview with um, the CEO of Wendy's, and he said, you know, look, we love hiring the sort of 60, 65 year old people and having them run shifts because. You know, to these young kids who are working there, it's like having your grandma and grandpa there. And, you know, you, you don't want to steal from grandma and grandpa. No, you, you literally wanna... have grandpa and yeah. grandpa, you know, grandma there. <laughs> exactly right. And, and you know, so this is this is not a new story. This is something that's been unfolding for, for a while. But like all these things, you know, you get to that snowball point where suddenly people understand these big trends and suddenly people start writing about them. And that raises not just awareness, unfortunately, but but the level of, of concern and panic that that happens. And what Raul, I guess, in, when I was speaking to him, what he was alluding to is basically, you know, there are all these pressures on the baby boomer balance sheet. And when you look at it more closely, it doesn't look pretty. What's really interesting is when we actually break down the balance sheet of the baby boomers, their household net worth. Now, the average baby boomer on paper looks okay. He's got kind of $1.1 million in net worth, about 24000 in bonds, about 270,000 in equities, 314,000 in the uh, real estate that he owns, i.e. the amount that it's worth above the uh, cost of borrowing that he has, savings about 107,000, pension fund assets of 263, and then about 120,000 of other savings and assets. But you don't need to be a statistician to know that averages can be deceiving. However, that's not the real picture. The real picture is, as we all know, The rich are skewing all the numbers nowadays. Basically, the 1% have all the wealth. So if you actually strip out that 1% by taking the median net worth, their actual assets amount to $180,000. That's all their pensions, all their savings, all their bonds, all their equities, and all of the value in their real estate. They only have 50,000 of positive equity in their real estate. The largest part of all of their assets is basically in the equity market. So if we look at the equities of 45,000 and their pension fund assets, which is probably about 70% equities, there's about, call it $60,000 of their total net worth, which is in the equity market. You know, it's interesting. I'm I'm here in New York um, and I went into the bank yesterday um, and playing on huge screens all around the particular branch I went into was a, a commercial showing a guy who just put new wood floors down in his house and the guy and his kids are sliding across the floor in their socks because the floors are so smooth and everyone's got big beaming smiles on their face. Um, and, it, and it basically says, you know, contact us and we'll, we'll tell you how to tap into the equity in your home. You know, we're back here already. We're back here already. I mean, it, it, I, I stood there and I watched this thing loop around three or four times. I just could not believe that we're back here already. And obviously, to Raoul's point... Um, the big part of most people's uh, net worth is in the equity of their home. And once again, they're being encouraged to take that out to, to put down new floors and to take that holiday that they really wanted. Uh, it, you know, it's, it, this, is, this is really quite frightening. 
And, and I think that's a great point. And when you listen to this, it, it sounds like, it, I mean, it flies against most conventional wisdom that you hear at least, you know, fed to retirees. Like, no, you should be in bonds. You, know, you should be in, in high dividend yielding uh, stocks. You know, you should be in blue chips. But if you strip away the pensions as we, you know, as we did and as we should, because you can't, you know, you can't rely on those future cash flows. You strip away that and then you strip away, I guess, essentially the, the equity in a house because it's not the most liquid asset. I guess you could be taking out the equity um, in a loan, but all retirees are left with is equity and it looks good on paper. But I mean, we're still thinking we're still thinking on the aggregate here. And I wanted to hear from Raul about how this relates at the individual level. And he started to talk about his father. Now, that kind of means nothing until we look at it, what it means for us or our family. And this is where it gets real. I mean, I've seen this exact situation happen numerous times. I've seen my father, when he retired, he's now 78, but when he retired at 60, he'd had a good career most of his life and accumulated what he thought was enough assets to retire. But in his mind, he'd get a 10% return on assets a year, and that's where he was going to generate his returns. By the time he retired, I think he was—he lives in Europe, and bund yields at the time were about 4.5%. And I forced him to buy bunds. Um, but those 10-year bonds eventually rolled off. And then he had to invest in other things and suddenly realised that the interest rate he was getting was something close to 1%. But the point being is, firstly, when he retired, he went from changing his BMW every three years, um, spending money on fine wines and exp- expensive restaurants and fancy holidays... The moment he retired, he thought, I need to be conservative. I don't know how long my money's going to last. So his spending habits collapsed. So it has a real economic impact, these guys. But not only did his spending habits collapse, but then his returns on his investments collapsed because mainly retirees are in fixed income. So that meant, again, he had to take down his spending. And so I saw probably his spending habits fall 70% over the period of about five years from retirement to when the realisation came upon him that he wasn't as wealthy as he thought he was. And so this is, I thought this was a really interesting point because here Raul is describing sort of the demographic and the financial economic trends that are influencing behavior of baby boomers at the margin as consumers and as investors. So ask him to elaborate a little bit further on that and see where the next tipping point may be. Well, I think the biggest issue is not knowing how long you'll live for. And if you don't know how long you live for, you don't know how fast you can spend your money. So it automatically creates a larger break than you would expect on somebody's spending patterns. So the consumption patterns will change dramatically in the Western world going forwards for the next 10 or 15 years until the baby boomers come out of the population. I think it's a huge thing that people don't really understand because people look at linear progression of, of spending and how you would spend, you know, if you think you're going to live another 20 years, then you'd spend 1 20th every year. But it doesn't work that way because everyone's terrified of of running out of money. So you tend to be much more conservative. So I think that's a crucial thing. Also, eventually, there will be a behavioural shift on how people think about risk. Right now, the behavioural incentive is, I don't have enough money to retire. So there is no point stopping the game here. I might as well just keep investing and hope the market goes up. But there will be a shift when it will be, I cannot lose my savings, because if the market falls, I've wiped out my savings. That shift will change how we think of financial markets. Also, that shift of assets into consumption, even though it's low consumption, will mean that the entire financial industry that is fed of the carcass of the baby boomer for the last 30 years will see so much of the money leave leave the the financial system. Yeah, wow. So, you know, the baby boomers have the largest holders of wealth in the world. And with the retirement age going up, they will eventually have to retire in 2027. And so there you have these two material behavioral shifts, you know, the scaling back for consumption and the divesting of assets for consumption. I think the implication here is that this trend is just massively deflationary. Yeah. And and at best, you know, this is a demographic issue. So this is not something that we can get all the baby boomers together and, and talk to them all and then say to them, okay, some of you are going to have to retire here, here, here. All it means is at best, this wave is maybe going to get pushed back a year or two into the future as all of them are making the same decisions, facing the same problems. But to your point, Aaron, at some point, they all have to retire. I mean, unfortunately, the only alternative is to die. So 
This is a problem that's not going away. It's like many of these issues that you see from a distance. They, they you know, they're kind of they seem almost too big. We're talking about 36 trillion uh, in assets and 78 trillion unfunded liabilities. These are numbers so big that people think they don't have to worry about them. Um, just like Japan, just like that famous statistic about the Japanese population will net be dying off in 2015. Well, I first heard that statistic in 1988, um, and it was so far off that no one really thought about it until bang, suddenly it's 2015, and the stat has come true because it's math. So this is a real, real problem. And there, to your point about deflation, um, given the severe amount of debt in the world uh, and the level of unfunded liabilities, there is absolutely no chance of getting out of this if we do slip back into deflation, which is why uh, the, the battle against deflation has been such a pitched one. Uh, but what we're talking about in this particular uh, feature we're doing is the flip side of that. In, in fighting deflation and taking rates to zero, um, you've actually compounded the problem. And, and just to be clear, for, you know, for our listeners, you know, we're not trying to be doom and gloom here. You know, we're just bringing you the story as as we see it. And and you just and you said it, Grant. You just can't defy the math. It just doesn't work. And and I think the best thing that we can do is to stay informed, to be prepared. And this is an ongoing story that we'll be tracking very closely. Yeah, it's a story that's not going away. And you're right, Aaron. I mean, that's, that's, that's a, it's a great point to make. This is not all about doom and gloom. This is all about understanding the problem while there is still time to do something about it. And so uh, this is a story that we'll be spending a lot of time uh, focusing on and following. Um, but it is something that I, I cannot stress highly enough. This is not something that that any 65-year-olds plus need to be paying attention to. This is something that millennials, everybody needs to get their heads around this story um, and understand uh, what's happening? All right, so now moving out of the pension crisis, we are going to move on to our Things I Got Wrong segment, where we speak with a market expert about an investing hiccup or mistake that they made in the past. And we ask them to share with us a lesson they learned from that experience so that we can benefit from that wisdom. Yeah, this week was a fun one. We had Preston Pish uh, join us, uh, co-host of the Investors Podcast, which I can't recommend highly enough for you guys out there, uh, and the founder of Pylon Holding Company. And we spoke to Preston about a lesson he's learned the hard way. So this week, it's a real treat to welcome someone who I began listening to all the way back in 2015 uh, when I first started getting into podcasts. He is the co-host of the Investors Podcast, which if you haven't listened to yet, I highly recommend it. You know, you should check it out. Actually, in fact, Raul Powell, who's the co-founder of Real Vision, who's my boss, uh, recently gave a fantastic interview. So go check it out, download the episode, and make sure to subscribe. And without further ado, with us this week is Preston Pish. Preston, thanks for joining us. Hey, guys. Honored to be here. I'm a big fan of Real Vision. Um, been a subscriber for a while now, and uh, just really honored to be here and with your audience. Well, it's great to have you on. And before we start, can you give our listeners, for those who don't know you, can you give us a rundown of your background and about the work you're doing over at the Investors Podcast? Yeah, sure. So um, I come from probably not your normal background. Uh, I come from a military background. I was an attack helicopter pilot. I used to fly Apache helicopters. That's um, awesome. Sorry. And, uh, <laughs> and uh, I did that for almost a decade, a little bit under a decade. And then I now I'll do a lot of, um, you know, I have a podcast, I run my own business. And um, with with that, we interview a lot of uh, fantastic investors out there. We study billionaires is really the theme of our show. And so we read a lot of books, uh, lots and lots of books. And we report back what we learn from all these different books that we read that billionaires endorsed uh, to our audience on our podcast. So that's what I'm up to nowadays. Yeah, I, I got to say, I'll just jump in here. Uh, I, firstly, I echo Aaron. It's a fantastic podcast, uh, Preston. You, you and Stig do a, do a tremendous job with that. Uh, and secondly, can you try and have not quite such an interesting background? It really kind of makes us look <laughs> pretty dull. <laughs> yeah, it's uh, it, it's you know what's what's interesting though, Grant, to, to talk about it is coming from that background and kind of seeing things from such a different vantage point. I think has really been advantageous because I've been able to apply things that I kind of learned from even a military background to finance. Um, and it, it's, it's weird. I guess sometimes I look at different situations in finance a lot differently than another person and maybe describe it a little bit differently just because of the, the background, which has been a real blessing. And I've been, you know, really honored to have come from that background because 
it's it's fun to try to explain some of the different things that are happening in finance through that lens of maybe a pilot or you know whatever. But yeah, thank you. I appreciate the compliment. You know, it's um, it's it's so funny you say this because um, that diversity of background is pretty uncommon in finance. But but as you point out, it's so useful. One of one of my favorite interviews in Real Vision was with a guy called Don Yeager, who's a, a Sports Illustrated writer. I mean, a tremendous guy has written a bunch of best-selling books, and just to hear him talk about how athletes look at the world, you realize the parallels with investing are just so, so strong. Uh, and I think that different perspective really does help anyone that, that is lucky enough to have one. But Grant, I think we're taking it to another level um, with an attack helicopter pilot. I don't think we've ever <laughs> had anyone on the program quite like that. Uh, you said, you know, it's really interesting background and it's, get, it's about to get a lot more interesting because Preston, I want to ask you, you know, as with, you know, with this segment, it's called Things I Got Wrong. And our goal is to uncover some timeless investing wisdom through candid conversations about mistakes investors have made in the past. So why don't we start off? Can you describe a time for us that you made an investment mistake? So I'm the perfect person for this uh, segment because I make so many mistakes, it's hard to keep track of all of them. Um, so I'll take you back to the one that sticks out in my head that's the most obvious from a finance standpoint was Back in the 2007-2008 timeframe, which I think a lot of people that are probably over the age of 35 can all empathize with. So during that period of time, um, you know, I had read a lot. I, you know, if you go back to that period in time in 2008, I was a huge, huge Warren Buffett fan. Read anything I could get my hands on relating to Warren Buffett, and I still am to this day. But my approach is, is I guess maybe I view Buffett from a different lens now than I did back in 2000. 2008 when I made this catastrophic mistake in the market and my mistake was that I was basically a hundred percent invested in the stock market I was a hundred percent in equities and I was in that position at a time when the Schiller PE back in 2007 was a 27 so when you look at you know that return that you're expected to get when the market's priced that high you can't really expect too much of a return it's about uh 3.7% return is what you could expect at a Schiller PE of, of a 27. So I wasn't thinking through things as much like Buffett as I thought I was, is, is probably really the point in the mistake. Um, and there has been just a whole host of learning that's come out of that mistake. And so as everyone knows, the market contracted you know, it was at 14,000 on the Dow. I want to say it got to six. 1,800 or 6,600 uh, at the deepest part in 2009. And so that experience for me was just, oh my God, it was brutal. I mean, I had my entire life savings tied up in stocks and to go through that was indescribable. And so for anybody that's in, been involved in the market since 2009 onward, um, these people don't know what it's like to be in a bear market, in my opinion. If you've been involved in the market since 2009 till now, all you know is that it goes up. And for me, that experience sits in my mind every single day of what I went through from 2007 to 2008. You know, Preston, it's, it's, it's fascinating to me that you, that you bring this up because I, I've, I've talked about this a lot. And funny enough, quite recently, and, you know, and we sit here with the Cape Schiller at, what, 29 now. So people listening here, this is such a such a timely lesson for them to learn. But but your point about guys who've been in the market since two thousand nine is is so well taken. You know, I I started my career immediately before the eighty seven crash, and, it, and it's so, you know coincidentally I've just found myself writing and talking about this a lot recently, and and having that experience, having you know sitting in a desk with a trading book full of full of equities like you were talking about there, and watching twenty six percent of its value get taken away in a single day just makes you realize that that can happen. And I think that allows you to factor that kind of possibility in to, to your thinking. Yeah. Once it happens to you, you never forget that experience yeah. and, that, and that pain. So I've got a couple points that I want to highlight that I really learned from that experience. And I think that these are points that you know I've discovered from doing over 130 episodes on our show, talking to really smart investors and always going back and contemplating that experience from 2007, 2008. And I'd say these, these couple points I've got here are, are what I really learned. The first thing that I learned is that you have to understand portfolio positioning. So for the listeners, 
there's really four main categories that you got to understand. You got to understand stocks, you got to understand bonds, you got to understand currencies, and you got to understand commodities. Your money needs to be distributed into one of those four buckets for, you know, options and derivatives, I guess you could even kind of incorporate in there, but Really, these four buckets are where you got to really understand where your positioning is at. So going back to my experience in 2007, 100% of my portfolio was in stocks, okay? So let's, uh, let's talk through like Buffett today. And this is the thing that, that I didn't understand back then. When we look at Buffett's positioning today, okay, he is literally sitting on $86.3 billion in cash today in 2007 when we're recording. We're recording this in April 4th of 2017. Buffett's sitting on $86.3 billion of cash. So when you look at one of those, where you're putting your money in one of those four buckets, he's got a significant portion of his portfolio sitting in currencies, not stocks. Okay. Now, he also has a significant portion sitting in stocks, but... Um, when you look at the trend of how he's been investing his money, five years ago, he was uh, with cash. He was around $46 billion. And now he's almost doubled that position over the five-year period of time. So when I look at things like that, and I see how some of these really big fish are moving inside the market and how they're positioning themselves, they're preparing themselves for a liquidity event, in my opinion. This is my personal opinion. And you know, when I look at my personal portfolio now, I have adjusted my portfolio so that it's not so heavily invested in stocks. And that's a lesson that's all about portfolio positioning. And you talk to any major investor that's investing more than a billion dollars, that is the one highlight that you see them bring up almost every single time is how are you positioned? How are you thinking through your positioning? And uh, what trends are you, are you noticing that you might need to start changing your positioning and that would be the first lesson that I'd say I really learned from this 2007-2008 experience. I think that, that the point about positioning is so is so interesting because, uh, Grant, I remember that uh, the last interview you did with Cal Bass, the first question you asked him, I think, was about positioning. Yeah, yeah. It, and it's, it's funny that um, at a time when active versus passive is the big argument and people uh, are losing assets under management because they're holding too much cash, uh, it's fascinating that we're getting a lot of smart guys moving to cash, the Buffetts of the world, the Jeremy Granthams of the world. You know, these guys, they really do know what they're doing. They do understand the way these cycles work. And, and I think something, to your point, Preston, something people really can learn is do look how well-known, long-time successful managers um, are, are, are moving their money around. And, and I think a lot of them are going to cash, and some of them are losing assets for it, but they're sticking by their guns. And it's an important thing to understand. Preston, if I may, I want to um, get back to what you were talking about, you know, your experience and, and how your views uh, on, on Buffett have developed over time. Can you, can you speak a little bit more to that and, and how, um, how that thinking has evolved? So the, the big thing that I think Buffett really understands but doesn't ever talk about is I think Buffett understands macro a whole lot better than he lets on. And uh, back in 2007, 2008, you know, everything that you read on Buffett is that he ignores macro. And I think for the most part, he does to a certain extent. But at the same time, I think he knows when things start getting overvalued and, and yields that he expects. Um, this would really be the second learning point for me. Yields that he expects across those four buckets is something that he's an expert at. So let's talk about. Let's go back to 2007 and let me just demonstrate what I'm talking about here. So in 2007, the Schiller PE, like I said, was a 27, which meant that anybody who's investing in the stock market in, in general terms, if you were going to buy the S&P 500, you could expect to get a 3.7% return. But what I failed to tell the audience was that in 2007, you could also go out and buy a one month uh, note, treasury note for 5.25% return, okay? So think about how ludicrous this is from my decision-making back in 2007, 2008, that I would have been fully invested in, in equities that were yielding 3.7% when I could have been buying a 5.25% note that had a one-month duration 
Now it's annual. It's the the percentage I'm giving you is an annual return, but it would mature in a month. Okay, what in what in this world would make a person choose three point seven over five point two five that matures in one month? Okay, like when you think through that thought process, the kind of person who's on this podcast. <laughs> well, I appreciate that, but I'll tell you that was a painful lesson for me to learn. You know, like what. When you go back and you look at all these talking heads in 2007, 2008, what in the world was anybody doing in, in fully invested in equities with a 3.7% expected yield? That's crazy. Preston, you know, it's interesting you talk about that, uh, this 3.7% return um, versus the 5% because we're right back there again in the stock market. We're at a 29 shiller, I think. Um, the only difference being you don't have that Five percent treasury yield as an alternative. So, having learned that lesson uh, back in 07, the painful way, and seeing that we're there again, but not having that that option of a five percent yield uh, in a safe instrument, uh, it, how have you adjusted your thinking? Is it is it purely to hold more cash? Well, so you bring up a great point. So the Schiller's higher today. We're at twenty nine, like you said, which is a three point four percent return that we can expect today. But the difference now is you don't have the the treasury yields as high as what you did back in the 2007 timeframe. So now the question becomes, you know, the t let's just take the 10-year, for example. The 10-year is giving you 2.4% right now while we're recording. So the question is, is do I really think a 1% premium that I can get in the S&P 500 is worth the risk of owning something that can contract by 50 or 60%, um, is that extra 1% worth it? For me, the answer is no. But each person out there is going to have a different response to that depending on their risk tolerance. So I all I can say is, yeah, so I own my own business. So whenever I think about how I can operationally invest my cash flow, okay, I can do that organically in my own business and probably you know, create an asset that will give me a 30% re return or whatever based on what, you know, what I know about my fundamental business. And it's a small cap business. So it's a lot easier to get those kind of returns. Or do I go and take my retained earnings and throw it in the market for a measly 3.4% return with a 50% downside risk? I mean, it's to me, I'd rather hold cash, you know, but, but that's me because I guess I was, maybe I was too, too influenced by this event in 2007, 2008. I might be missing an opportunity of more upside, but for me, the, the pricing on this stuff is getting ludicrous. The, the different options that are out there are so measly returns that it's like, okay, if I missed out on a 3% opportunity for the year, so what? At least I'm protecting my downside risk. And so I guess that leads to my third learning point for all this which is really understanding asymmetrical upside downside. Okay. If my upside's 3% and my downside is call it 50% or even 30%. Okay. That's asymmetrical. And anytime you're, you're on the wrong side of an asymmetrical position, you're going to get tore up. That's just, that's just, I guess the lessons that I've learned over the last decade. So, you know, let's go back to the 2007, 2008, 2009 timeframe to demonstrate my point here. So you go 2009, okay, now all the death and destructions happened in the market. The P-E ratio in the market, you know, is probably around a 10, maybe even lower. So now you're getting a 10% return if you start buying equities and stocks. And then the t you know what happened to the to the short term bond rate? It went down to 0.03%. The 30 year was down to 3.6%. So now let me compare my options again. This is 2009, the summer of 2009. Now my options are buy stocks with an expected return of 10%, huge upside, or buy these measly bonds if you're talking the short duration to make an apples to apples comparison to our previous analogy get a 0.03% return, that's crazy talk. So there's your asymmetrical upside downside. You should have been buying stocks in 2009 purely based off the numbers. It's just, I mean, this is pure quant stuff. No, no, it's, it's a great point. And, I, you know, Preston, I was just looking at a chart today uh, that showed the ratio between U.S. equities and U.S. government bonds of tenure on a total returns basis going back to the 1900s. 
And I, we're currently at like a ratio of 45, which is just like 10, 10 points shy of, of the all-time high that we put back in 1999, 2000. Uh, you know, the high in, in 2007 was around 35. So we're way past that. And it looks like the asymmetry, the asymmetry is in. Now, it's just a question of whether you're, you know, I guess, fortunate enough or, or, or have the awareness to, to go through the mental calculus that, you know, you're just describing. But no, I think you make a great, a great point there. Yeah, Aaron, it's it's funny. People people talk about this, and we and we find endless comparisons to two thousand. I don't know what you think about this, Preston, but you know, two thousand was such an outlier that to use it in comparative uh, terms is a, is a very dangerous thing to do. Because if you're justifying today's valuations by how they look relative to two thousand, uh, we're already way past danger territory. Yeah. You know, th this is this might come as a shock to a lot of people that maybe would have listened to my show. But if somebody told me that this thing had more to run on the stock market side, I I wouldn't be surprised with that at all. Be just because of that one percent that still exists, that that spread between the fixed income side and the equity side. But that doesn't mean that I think I should be in stocks and chase that that one percent spread because I think it could potentially run higher. I just I guess I'm looking at it from terms of, you know, inflation's two percent ish, and if you're getting, you know, two point four percent in a bond, that's worthless. That's the same as cash. Okay. When you look at the inflationary impacts on stocks, it's not a hundred percent, you know, subtracted out of the yield of the stocks, but I'd I'd argue maybe fifty percent of it is. So. You know, three point four percent return based on the current price. Let's subtract another one percent out of that. So for me, I'm not going to buy stocks with a two point four percent return. This is not going to happen. I will sit on the cash and I'll look organically in my own business on how I can invest that money more operationally. And I think, and I think that's a lesson for for people that are involved in stocks. Anybody who controls a decent amount of cash flow today. I guarantee you that's how they're thinking. And if they aren't, they're going to get tore up. Well, Preston, unfortunately, I, we could talk for much, much longer, but we've come to the end of the segment. Can you tell our listeners where they can find your work and, and where they can uh, follow the podcast? Yeah, thanks, guys, for the opportunity. Um, uh, you know, most of the stuff that I write and most of the audio content that I create is over at theinvestorspodcast.com. Uh, that's where, you know, all of our show notes for our podcast is at. You can go on the iTunes and just search we study billionaires or the investors podcast and you'll see our show come up. Um, I'm on Twitter under Preston Pish is my handle. If you guys want to send me tweets or ask questions or whatever, but those are the main spots that people can find me. And, and I just really, really appreciate the opportunity to come on the program and, and have a discussion with you. It's always such a pleasure. Yeah. You know, Preston, it's uh, I can't thank you enough for appearing. You know, when you, when you say to people, Hey, come and talk to us about something you screwed up. Uh, it, it takes a special guy to say, you know, what? I'm happy to do that, and and uh, we, we're just we're just so pleased that you you came on and did that with us. I think everybody that listening to this is going to learn a ton of lessons from this today. So thanks for sharing it with us. Absolutely, guys. Thank you for having me on. You know, Grant, that that might have been one of my favorite interviews that we've done so far in our I guess young life of uh, adventures in finance. You know, we live in this macro world. And it's actually nice to hear and, and to learn from someone who is leading the, who is a leading voice in the value investing community, to hear a different voice, to hear a different perspective. And I mean, it's also pretty cool that he was a, a former Apache helicopter pilot. <laughs> yeah, I know, right? I mean, that's just so cool. But uh, yeah, look, it, it's, uh, people think about value investing and they think about these long-term time rises. They think about guys like Warren Buffett who just seem to get steadily richer uh, and so it's great to have someone like Preston come in and point out that if you get your entry point wrong into some of these value investments, or if you get your position sizing wrong, or you get your uh, tactics or strategy wrong, that can be a very painful, uh, painful place to be. So yeah, I, I, I thoroughly enjoyed that. Preston's a great guy. And again, I would uh, urge people to check out the Investors Podcast. Yeah, likewise. But that brings us to the end of this episode. You know, just a quick legal plug uh, before we end. Anything you heard on this episode should not be considered as trading advice. These are our opinions and the opinions of our contributors only. So do your fundamental research, chart your technicals, place your stops if you're into that, and trade responsibly. 
Yeah, yeah, I, I second that. Although perhaps we should, uh, you should say the T's and C's much faster, Aaron, like they do on these uh, radio commercials. Yes, maybe at the beginning. Actually, no, faster, as in like say it faster. Sorry. Yeah, exactly right. Okay. Well, guys, next week we're back with the usual long short segments and things I got wrong. And we'll also be back with a commentary feature. Yeah, next week we're going to listen in on a discussion between two titans of the hedge fund industry, uh, Kyle Bass and John Burbank, who sat down for a conversation amazingly, Aaron, uh, two years ago, March 2015. And you might think, you know, why are we going to listen to an interview that's two years old? But it's amazing how applicable this is today in terms of lessons for people. So Raul and I are going to revisit that interview, pick our way through it, and, and pull out some of the highlights of a piece that at the time we just sat there just blown away listening to these guys talk. If you've got an interesting question about this week's show, we'd love to hear it. Please send us an email or voice note at podcast at realvision.com. Yep, and if you enjoyed what you heard, uh, please do subscribe to us on iTunes. Uh, tell your friends, uh, the more the merrier. And if you do get a second to review us, that would really be great. And if you find a dusty window, make sure to put the imprint on it. <laughs> <laughs> and to keep up to date with the latest interviews, research publications, and podcast episodes, be sure to follow us on Twitter at Real Vision. And you'll also find us uh, hanging out, I believe, as the millennials say, uh, on Facebook and LinkedIn. If you just search for Real Vision, you can follow me on Twitter at TTMYGH. And you can follow me at Macrodidact. And that's it from us. We will see you back here next week. You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with Lips and Ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L I B S Y N ads.com.